Bernie is surging. That is the top story here. Uh, this is actually from the hill.com. And it shows that Bernie uh, has taken the lead in some places and is extremely competitive in others. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders is rising in the polls ahead of Thursday's pivotal debate in L.A., reestablishing his standing in the top tier. Uh, well, he was always in the top tier, contrary to what the media was trying to sell. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll get to the, the main points. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Sanders appears to be hitting his stride at just the right moment, surging past Warren and cutting into Biden's lead in new national surveys. Can I just make a point here? Can I just make a point? So what's what's amazing to me is the corporate media narrative has been, oh, Medicare for all has been the death nail of Elizabeth Warren's campaign. Medicare for all, you know, health care, you know, just destroyed her campaign. It took her from leading as the national front runner in some polls to now, you know, she's free rolling. If that's the case, why is Bernie Sanders, who is unabashedly for Medicare for all, in surging while Elizabeth Warren is falling? Could it be that it went from I'm with Bernie to I'm kind of all over the place? I mean, we're going to get into the fact that now she's saying she's using the word choice, which is clearly a giant signal. She was never serious about Medicare for all in the first place. But this narrative that Elizabeth Warren is suffering because she was for Medicare for all, she started going down when she started moonwalking for Medicare for all. I I don't even understand. It's like it's like the land of make believe CNN and The New York Times. You know, when I was a kid, I used to love the WWF wrestling. Uh, I think I knew it was kind of fake after a while, but, you know, it was like a excuse for me to watch a soap opera, you know, Uh, but it was fake. You know, I know it's fake now, but it was entertaining. I I feel like the media is just pushing fake news. I'm not trying to sound like Trump, but I mean, it's so obvious why she's sliding. And if Medicare for all is so unpopular, why is Bernie surging and Elizabeth Warren sliding? Hmm. Bernie, uh, Bernard Sanders. Uh, he is now, he is now, uh, taking the lead in New Hampshire, uh, in the real clear politics average and in Iowa, uh, just slightly behind Buttigieg. So let's take a look at New Hampshire. He's taken the lead, uh, you know, definitely margin of error, but that's the average of all polls. Uh, you see Warren really, really sliding, uh, Gabbard almost at 6%. You also see in Iowa, uh, Buddha judge up 3% or actually less than 3%. Uh, Warren again in fourth place, Iowa, uh, I take with a very big grain of salt because you look at uh, a primary caucus polls in Iowa. Listen, a caucus is not a primary, you know, like people need to go. They need to invest time and energy into caucusing. Uh, whereas a primary is more of a straight shot. You go, you pull the lever, you leave, Right. And I also think Iowa, I mean, look at 2016, it's just much more unpredictable. Hillary Clinton was super, super uh, up in Iowa for the most part. She ended up winning by less than one-tenth of one percent. The campaign did not panic or make dramatic changes in messaging or strategy in the fall after Sanders suffered a heart attack. Instead, the campaign banked on Sanders' unwavering focus on economic issues and wealth inequality. The campaign believes the strategy is paying off in the stretch run to Iowa, leading to rising poll numbers. Quote, no other candidate has has as durable a base as we do, said Nina Turner. 
So quote, so now he has an energized base and we're starting to see his crossover appeal. We could enumerate that, too. With four million donations and hundreds of thousands of volunteers, we have the receipts and we have the moral clarity from a senator who has stood on the right side of justice for over 40 years. Nationally, Sanders is back in the game, surpassing Warren after trailing her by double digits. The latest NPR PBS Marist National Survey released Sunday found Biden with the support of 24 percent of respondents, Sanders at 22 percent and Warren at 17 percent. So you get the you get the point. Honestly, right now, I think and I said this yesterday, I think if the Iowa caucus were held today, uh, it's really a 50 50 between Bernie and Pete Buttigieg. I think uh, Joe Biden's campaign has basically waved the white flag already in Iowa. I think um, Elizabeth Warren, I mean, unless there is some magical moment she has in this debate, uh, unless she suddenly comes out uh, in January before the Iowa caucus and, you know, quits faking it and just says, listen, I'm uh, I'm a capitalist war you know i'm a capitalist warrior who wants to save capitalism because she's trying to straddle the line and pretend to be a super progressive when she's not uh i think elizabeth warren her fatal mistake was having no conviction uh and it shows and it shows in the numbers they keep the corporate media keeps talking about elizabeth warren's campaign is the most uh structured and well-organized campaign in iowa i mean i don't really know First of all, Bernie Sanders has way more volunteers than any other candidate, but I don't really know what that structure is going to do if nobody really knows what you stands for. Iowa voters are smart. Iowa voters take this seriously, and Iowa voters have basically met and heard from three or four Elizabeth Warrens, which we're going to get to in a little bit because now she's starting with the choice talk. With Bernie, I think that he has had kind of since 2016 and odds and evens kind of sequence. What I mean by that, in the debates, he's been fire in one debate and ice in the next debate. He, After his heart attack, he came out with fire breathing out. He was strong. He went after Biden multiple times. The next debate, not as much. A lot of people don't like when I criticize that, but it's a pattern. But the only way that Bernie Sanders could take it uh, and elevate himself from right now, which right now, again, 50-50 in Iowa, I think. New Hampshire, if it were held today, I think Bernie would win. Iowa, it, it's just a 50-50. I mean, there's really no firm way to know whether it would be Bernie or Buttigieg. I don't think it's going to be Biden. I don't think it's going to be Warren. But I think Bernie has a major opportunity, maybe one of the most important debates that he's ever had. Because right now, He's kind of like, um, you know, sorry if I'm mentioning something to you that uh, you haven't seen it. He's kind of like Rocky after losing the first round. You know, Rocky won. Uh, he comes out of nowhere and he loses to Apollo Creed. And that second Rocky, he has the chance to actually take him out. And I think Bernie has an opportunity this Thursday to really, really surge into first place. And the way to do that is to not go after Pete Buttigieg, let other people go after Pete Buttigieg. I'm going to tell you some things today that I hope other people mention. Um, he needs to go after Joe Biden, and he needs to go after Joe Biden on a lot more than um, Iraq. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty to discuss with Iraq. The Daily Beast of all places had a, had a story uh, that came out recently that was really good. But 
the bottom line is Joe Biden right now is Bernie Sanders' biggest obstacle to winning. And there is so much to take him down on. And there is such a such a path to picking off, I would guess, two to three percent of Joe Biden's voters who are only making fifty thousand dollars or less and only have high school degrees. And the way to do that is to expose the fact not only is this man not for unions, not only is this man not for working people, he has actively not just voted for things that decimated those, but he has actively pushed for policies that have decimated those. And Bernie Sanders, frankly, has not done a great job of exposing that during these debates. He mentioned Joe Biden in terms of, oh, well, my good friend Joe here voted for the T- NAFTA, voted for the TPP. And I get it. He only has 40 seconds and whatever. But Bernie Sanders needs to explain in a very, very, um, in a soundbite. And I know that's against kind of what he stands for. He has to be able to communicate to the audience Donald Trump is a danger in many different ways, but Joe Biden is not going to help close the income gap. Joe Biden is not going to help you have you get off that second job into one job. Joe Biden is not going to help you get expanded health care. Joe Biden is not going to improve your wallet because Joe Biden and his wing of the Democratic Party are in large part emboldening Donald Trump. He needs to go aggressively. He needs to mention, I mean, this was unbelievable to me. Barely anyone's mentioned it. This is Joe Biden at a fundraiser last week. Mr. Biden noted the elevated financial status of the supporters in the room several times. At one point, he repeated what he said at other fundraisers. Quote, by the way, if you elect me, most of you are not going to get a tax cut. Applause followed. He said that his longtime Delaware senator... He knew the state's wealthy DuPont family didn't need his help. And by the way, I never demonized them. I've never run one of those campaign, these campaigns about the super populist campaigns. Well, here's what Joe Biden is not saying, and he's letting the press on press the press in. But what Joe Biden and I think Bernie Sanders needs to talk about this. It's not only whether you give them tax cuts or you don't give them tax cuts. It's about what are you doing other than taxes? Just because you might not give them a massive tax cut like Trump doesn't mean you're actually evening the playing field. You're still, as president, going to be giving bankers subsidies. You're still, as president, going to be giving healthcare companies subsidies. You're still, as president, going to be giving fossil fuel companies subsidies. Silicon Valley gets subsidies. Joe Biden is not going to change that. Joe Biden, as president, you think... His Department of Justice, you think his EPA is going to regulate DuPonts of the world? By the way, people suddenly think that the EPA went rogue because of Trump. The EPA has been rogue way earlier than Trump. Maybe it's worse now. But the corporations regulate the regulating bodies. This has been happening under Joe Biden's Democratic Party, under Pete Buttigieg's Democratic Party. So in their world, Joe Biden thinks he's saying something populist or progressive by saying, you're not going to get a tax cut for me. You want to know why they're laughing? You want to know why they're applauding? 
because they don't care if they get a tax cut from Joe Biden because they know they're still going to get the deregulation. They're still going to get the subsidies. There's not going to be attorney generals of the United States under Joe Biden going after these criminal bankers, just like they didn't go after him under his, uh, under President Obama. They're still going to be able to have all the leverage, the corporate CEOs at his fundraisers and Mayor Pete's in crushing the unions because Joe Biden is not a real union man. Just read about the Democratic Party shift to the right over the last 30 years. They don't give a damn about the labor unions. It's like black people. They come to visit you during the primaries, during the election. They're, they're, you know, they suddenly care about black issues. They come to the churches. They come to the labor halls. And then once elected, who the hell are you? Call my secretary. So I want to move on to Elizabeth Warren, who frankly is starting to bore me a little bit. It's so predictable. I don't know who is advising Elizabeth Warren. I don't know what she's doing. I don't know if her campaign is trying a new strategy of doing things they know are going to help them lose. I just don't get it. But now Elizabeth Warren, uh, it moved from I'm with Bernie to I'm going to do a public option and then fight for Medicare for all in year three, which was obviously ridiculous, to now uh, choice. We're going to emphasize choice. So Elizabeth Warren has been using new notable language at her town halls to describe the transition in Medicare for all, saying under her plan, it would be avoiders choice to opt in. While the language is already a part of her transition proposal, it's a noticeable rhetorical shift on Warren's part after her moderate Democrat rivals, namely Pete Buttigieg, have criticized her plan that would eventually eliminate private insurance. For the last two weeks, Warren has described the transition in her Medicare for All plan as a choice for Americans to try. A new Fox poll released Sunday showed that support for government health care has dropped by double digits among Democrats since October That's okay. I read a different poll that says 62% support Medicare for all. But they'll cherry pick the polls that they want to cherry pick. And support, yeah, support usually falls when you have a concerted corporate media propaganda campaign against Medicare for all. During a stop in Cowick, Iowa on Monday morning, 54-year-old Camille Anderson told Warren she was afraid, she was a fan of her Medicare for all plan. But I keep hearing from people who are afraid, A, of the cost, and B, that they're going to, that they're not going to be able to get the care they need or see a doctor that they want with your plan. Is there something you could say to alleviate the concerns and their fears? After a lengthy explanation of how her plan would work, the Massachusetts senator emphasized to Anderson that she believes Americans will embrace it. Once they see it in action, let's let people try it. Find out what it feels like to be making healthcare decisions just between you and your medical professional to get the prescription drugs you need without having to worry about how big the copay is going to be and whether or not you're going to be able to get the prescription filled and still have enough money to left to uh, left over to buy the groceries this week. When tens of millions of people have had a chance to try that, I believe at that point we're going to be ready to vote for Medicare for everyone. For somebody who has plans for everything, uh, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And it's one of the uh, most naive things I've ever heard. So Jen has been Tom Perez the whole time. First of all, what she's describing is essentially a public option buy-in, which is a premium. 
So you have to buy in to a public option. She's calling it Medicare, but you're buying in to a public option. But because Elizabeth Warren's plan will maintain private health insurance, that public option is going to have a hard time keeping costs down because the government option, which she's calling Medicare, but it's really just a public option, is not going to have the monopoly over it like it would in Bernie Sanders' uh, Medicare for All plan. So she's talking about that people will smell the roses. They'll get into her Medicare plan, which, again, is not Medicare. It's a public option that is going to have a hard time controlling the cost because you still have private insurance gouging prices and the government will have to compete with private health insurance. So I don't know what she's describing here. It's not Medicare. It's a public option, which maybe 10 to 15 years ago was more palatable. But you've seen the stories. Private health insurance costs are soaring. Some, a story I read today, it's up 20 up 20% from last year. So what, what is, I don't, I don't get what is the choice. People would need to be able to afford the premium to buy into the public option. Not everyone could do that. And then when they're in the public option, the prices are not, uh, it's not going to be as um, expansive of options for doctors because you're going to still have a vibrant private health insurance industry. By the way, you're also, unless something radically changes, going to have a Republican-controlled Senate who's going to try and sabotage your public option in the first place. So I really don't know what she's talking about. And Wendell Potter, who, by the way, uh, I've tried to reach out a couple times. He's expressed interest in doing an interview. Wendell Potter, if you don't know, is basically like a private health care whistleblower. He used to work for the health insurance industry. And since then, he's been trying to, in his words, atone for the terrible, terrible things he and other private uh, health insurance people have done. So he uh, basically ex- exposed this today. I want to read you his thread. Lately, I've noticed some Democratic politicians defending the current health care system by saying it preserves choice for Americans. This is what Elizabeth Warren is talking about now. As a former health insurance exec who helped draft this talking point, I need to come clean on its backstory and why it's wrong and a trap. When I worked in the insurance industry, we were instructed to talk about choice based on focus groups and people like uh, Frank Lutz. Luntz, who was a Republican pollster spawned out of Fox News. He's a terrible person. I used it all the time as an industry flack, but there was a problem. As a health insurance PR guy, we knew one of the huge vulnerabilities of the current system was a lack of choice. In the current system, you can't pick your own doctor, specialist, or hospital without huge out-of-network bills. So we set out to muddy the issue of choice. As industry insiders, we also knew most Americans have very little choice of their plan. Your company chooses an insurance provider and you get to pick from a few different plans offered by that one insurer, usually either a high deductible plan or a higher deductible plan. Another problem insurers like mine had on the choice issue People with employer-based plans have very little choice to keep it. You could lose it if your company changes it, or you change jobs, or turn 26, or many other ways. This is a problem for defenders of the status quo. Knowing we were losing the choice argument, my pals in the insurance industry spent millions on lobbying, ads, and spin doctors. 
all designed to gaslight Americans into thinking that reforming the status quo would somehow give them less choice. An industry front group launched the campaign to achieve this very purpose. Its name, My Care, My Choice. Its job, trick Americans into thinking they currently can choose any plan they want and that their plan allows them to see any doctor. They've spent big in Iowa. This isn't the first time the industry made choice a big talking point in its scheme to fight health reform. Soon after Obamacare was passed, it created a front group called the Choice and Competition Coalition to scare states away from creating exchanges with better plans. The difference is, this time the Democrats are the ones parroting this misleading choice talking point. And they even using using it as a weapon against each other. Back in my insurance PR days, this would have stunned me. I bet my old colleagues are thrilled and celebrating. The truth, of course, is you don't you have little choice in healthcare now. Most can't keep their plan as long as they want it or visit any doctor or hospital. Some reforms, like Medicare for All, would let you. In other words, Medicare for All actually offers more choice than the status quo. So if a politician tells you they oppose reforming the current system because they want to preserve choice, either they don't know what they're talking about or they're willfully ignoring the truth. I assure you the insurance industry is delighted either way. I'd like that guy on television speaking on behalf of Bernie's Medicare for All plan. What could be better? Elizabeth Warren, honestly, for, you know, some people at my old stomping grounds, TYT, I really don't know how people with a straight face say she's progressive. She might be progressive-minded on some things, I think she genuinely has disdain for the big banks. I think she genuinely feels we need tighter regulation of economic markets. I think she genuinely thinks the system is rigged. But either she's ignorant on the fact that those very banks are the ones pushing against Medicare for all. Or I don't know, but this is not progressive language she is using. This is not progressive language Elizabeth Warren is using on healthcare, And frankly, I would have respected her more if she would have just come out from the beginning and say, I think we need to slowly build up to Medicare, uh, Medicare for all, and I'm going to do a public option. I don't agree with her, but at least there's some intellectual honesty in that position. She was never for Medicare for all. And frankly, I think more and more people, and it's not just Democrats, Republicans too, are seeing it's not that we can't have a universal health care system. These tired arguments, we're not Denmark, we're a bigger country, this and that, are irrelevant. People are waking up. And unfortunately, Elizabeth Warren is listening to the same exact losers that were in Hillary Clinton's ear, that are in Joe Biden's ear, that were in Democratic Congress congressional candidates and Senate candidates for the last 10 years. And that is why she's sliding. For no other reason than she does not have the courage of her convictions. I don't think she's a, a bad person. Um, some of you disagree, but I, I'm not like, listen, I'm not, I can't, we can't afford another four years of Donald Trump. I would personally deal with her if she was the nominee and vote for her, but I don't think it's going to come to that. I don't think she's as bad as Biden. I don't think she's as bad as Pete. But that's not an endorsement. You need to be better than this, Elizabeth Warren. You're a smart woman. You know 
what you're saying is false. So, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, YouTube recently came out earlier this month uh, with, you know, the birds and the bees. The four R's of responsibility. Raising authoritative content and reducing borderline content and harmful misinformation. So, apparently, uh, authoritative news is thriving on our site, whatever that means. Since January 2019, we've launched over 30 different changes to reduce recommendations of borderline content and harmful misinformation. The result is a 70% average drop in watch time of this content coming from non-subscribed recommendations in the U.S. So let me kind of explain what this means before I go further in depth. Um, Before YouTube decided who was the authoritative voices and channels and who um, was borderline I started at the Young Turks in January 2016. Uh, The channel that I started there, it was called TYT Politics. When I got there, it had 2,000 subscribers, from what I recall. Uh, This was at a time when there was no YouTube throttling and suppression, and YouTube was still kind of an open place. To tell you the truth, I didn't really have much support from TYT as far as marketing the channel. Once in a blue moon, they would feature a video on the main show. But overall, I didn't, you know, it was just a normal channel, right? Maybe the fact that it was at TYT helped a little bit in terms of like the algorithm, but I don't really think by much because at first the growth wasn't that quick. But in 11 months, not a year, 11 months, we went from 2,000 subscribers to 140,000, okay? Doing pretty much exactly the same thing I'm doing at Status Quo and we're doing at Status Quo. Granted, I had more uh, resources to travel while at the Young Turks. Now that it's, uh, you know, my own company with Jen, uh, we have to build those resources. So we haven't traveled as much, but we've traveled a good amount. I mean, we've been, uh, I mean, look at the map. We've been all over this country uh, in a year and a half. Uh, We've been to Canada too. We're continuing to travel. We've done it through GoFundMe. We've done it through membership, which is why I keep pushing membership. We are doing it the old school way. We're not taking corporate sponsorships. We're not taking fat cat investors. We are trying to grow paid, small dollar paid memberships. So when you look at this, you say, well, how is it that in less than a year with the same exact content, actually since then, we, status quo has kind of doubled down on, on what I did at TYT. How is it that we're growing at a snail's pace? How is it that even when we go up in subscribers, we go down in views? How is it that some weeks we get really significantly high views and then the next week we're like, we have videos that have been up for hours with like 50 views? How is it that I look at uh, charts in our analytics behind the scenes and some months we're literally growing like 10 new subscribers a day. How is that possible? Did people suddenly just like stop liking me? 
And by the way, it's not me. It's it's me, Jen, Marcus. Uh, we've had other uh, voices on the channel. You know, obviously, if, if something's going wrong with your content, you can tweak it, change it, and, and hopefully go better. But how is it that we're basically growing um, at a snail's pace? And I always knew the answer. It's because we're not recommended <laughs> at all, really. I, I've asked people that I don't know if they... I've asked people that I know but uh, aren't into politics. Have you ever seen my channel uh, on YouTube? They said, you have a channel? I bet, you know, when I go on Jimmy Dore's show, uh, he's been nice enough to have me on several times. We usually get a two to three thousand, two, two to three thousand subscriber jump. And the comments start flooding in. Jordan, we didn't know you were back. I've been back for like a year and a half now. People don't see this content. So it's frustrating because you could work seven days a week. You could even make the right choices as far as like picking certain stories you want to go out on in certain parts of the country. But if you're at the mercy of an outlet that is essentially through their algorithm deciding your borderline and CNN and Fox News are authoritative. Yeah, I'm not stuttering. Look at this. More and more people turn to YouTube to catch up on the latest news or simply learn more about the topics they're curious about, whether it's climate change or a natural disaster. For topics like music and entertainment, relevance, newsness, and popularity are most helpful to understand what people are interested in. But for subjects such as news, science, and historical events, where accuracy and authoritativeness are key, the quality of information and context matter most, much more than engagement. In 2017, we started to prioritize authoritative voices, including news sources like CNN, who, by the way, if you recall, for I think four months was going on and on about a missing plane where one of its anchors said maybe aliens swallowed the plane, who's been pushing this Russiagate nonsense for three and a half years, including such authoritative voices like Fox News who gave us the new Black Panthers, who gave us the birther movement, who gave us Benghazi, who gave us fill-in-the-blank on the absurdity that is Fox News on a day-to-day basis, who gave us the Obama terrorist fist jab. The Guardian, which frankly, I mean, I don't live in the UK, but... Fairly, fairly pro uh, Boris Johnson, if, if you ask me. Not a friend of Julian Assange. Have had some factual errors too recently. So wait a minute. Authoritative news is CNN and Fox News? Are you kidding me? And by the way, who the f*** is YouTube to decide... Who's authoritative news and who's borderline? Isn't the point of YouTube for it to be you, you creating, you deciding? But the truth is, authoritative voices, what that really means is voices that are corporate advertisers think are credible.
Authoritative means who are corporate advertisers don't have to worry about. Who are corporate advertisers can go to sleep at night and know we're in good hands. The status quo is in good hands. And by the way, YouTube, if you've noticed, has basically been trying to become a TV channel over the last two years. YouTube TV. So they couldn't have that borderline content harming their ability to basically become a television channel. So some might say, well, boo who, Jordan? It's a private company and go somewhere else. Well, if YouTube, owned by Google, by the way, has essentially the monopoly on independent broadcasting, right? Non-corporate broadcasting, meaning individuals who are not corporately funded entities. You know, Comcast owns NBC. Um, AT&T owns CNN. Then shouldn't it be publicly regulated as a utility? Why is it that YouTube gets to hide status quo and other channels in a cave while propping up CNN? People, if they want CNN, traditionally went to CNN, not YouTube. CNN videos used to get like 1,000 to 2,000 views. Now they're getting hundreds of thousands of views. Do you think that's because people suddenly like Wolf Blitzer? Let's, let's look at the borderline content. Content that comes close to but doesn't quite cross the line of violating our guidelines is a fraction of 1% of what's watched on YouTube. To give a quick comparison, me, uh, meditation videos have more daily watch time than borderline and harmful misinformation. That said, even a fraction of a percent is too much. So this past January, we announced we begin reducing recommendations of borderline content or videos that could misinform users in harmful ways. Well, how are you determining what is harmful or misinformation? I, get, I promise you, Aaron Maté and the Gray Zone doing videos on the uh, organization on the prohibition of um, uh, chemical weapons, doing videos on essentially whistleblower after whistleblower after whistleblower from the OPCW saying uh, the OPCW basically buried dissenting voices that there wasn't a chemical attack in Doma, Syria, last year, in Syria, that the, me that the media then pushed Trump to drop bombs in Syria. Uh, I promise you, is that, I think that's the borderline content they're talking about. And by the way, for those of you who think um, this is just me like complaining because status quo is growing too slow or this and that, I'm actually, this is much deeper than status quo, Right? It's not just status quo who, who suffers the consequences or other independent channels. It's communities. When YouTube hides and decides that channels without makeup-wearing old white men with suits paid for by AT&T or Comcast, when YouTube decides that those voices are controversial or borderline, well, a lot of those voices are covering the Flint water crisis or fights against pipelines, or voter suppression, or voter purges, or um, illegal corruption in America and around the world, 
or war crimes. It's the communities. It's the communities that suffer because they're not getting their stories shown. It's the Flints and the Standing Rocks and the other places. By the way, in 2016, when I was at Standing Rock, that was before Facebook changed its algorithm to suppress independent news. What would Standing Rock have been or not been if it happened a year later? You th- Trust me, it would not be getting tens of thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of views on Facebook if it happened in 2017 or 2018. There's real-world consequences. It's not just that, like, me ranting doesn't get seen. It's reporting on Flint, reporting at Standing Rock, showing the police, working with corporations to literally beat the living hell out of Native Americans and environmental activists. It's showing that a community of poor black people and poor white people don't have water now going into a second decade. Clean water. It also makes it so, and this is a big reason they're doing it, that you can't earn a living. Again, obviously I need to eat. Jen needs to eat. But... You know, status quo has had to kind of like start and stop, start and stop. You get a little bit of momentum. Uh, Like we had major momentum after the first debate in Miami. But then you're not, that momentum gets stopped because YouTube's algorithm keeps screwing with us. And it stops us from being able to go out on the campaign trail the amount we want. It stops us from being able to expand because we're not going to sell out and just get a big Democratic Party donor to fund us because then we wouldn't be who we are. 